0: Well, when you've reached the end of your life, you know, when you're grey and you're saggy and you're heavy and you're looking back at your life, what is it you want to see? Don't you want to see something meaningful? Don't you want to see that your life was an adventure, that it was wild, that it was fun, that it actually had meaning to your life? But to be honest... When you look around, most people don't really live for anything because nothing actually much happens. You know, you wake up, you go to work, you do your work, you come home, you eat, you watch something on your phone, your TV, your iPad, you go to sleep, and you wake up and you go to work and you do your work and then you come home and it's just, There's no adventure, there's no deeper purpose, not really living for anything. And so sometimes when we look at our lives and we try to find a meaning or a purpose, it can be hard to see one. We're born, we grow up, we grow old, we die. And then the next generation does the same thing and there doesn't really seem to be any more meaning to life than there seems to be waves on a shore. Each one just replaces the next one. I mean, even the Bible teaches this. In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, it begins with these words. It says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What does man gain from his toil, which he toils under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, it goes back to where it rises, the wind blows to the south, to the north, and round and round it goes, returning to its course. All streams flow into the sea, but the sea's never full. The place where the streams come from, so from there they return. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. See, even the Bible says, that nothing much happens. Generations come, generations go. The sun rises, the sun sets, the wind blows around. But what's the point? Can we actually live for something meaningful? Can we do something with our lives that's going to make a difference? Well, in our Bible passage this morning in Thessalonians, we read about the man Paul. Now, Paul is one of the most influential people to ever live, I would argue. And we read in the, in the book of Acts, you know, uh, first Bible reading, that he went to this place called Thessalonica. And he was there for three weeks. And they say of Paul that he turned the world upside down in just three weeks. We read that his time was not without resolve. It, it wasn't wasted energy or effort. In fact, First Thessalonians chapter two verse one, it, Paul writes this: He says, "You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain." Paul says that his life, and especially his time in Thessalonica, it was not wasted. On the contrary, he turned the world upside down, they say. His coming wasn't without result. Well, what was it that Paul did to make his time there not in vain? And what can we learn here at Reforming Church this morning from Paul to make sure that we're actually going to leave a lasting impact on our city and even the world when our time is done? Well, there's there's six things I want to go through swiftly this morning, and they all start with the letter M, and you'll see them there. If you've got a, a page five on our service sheets, there's a place to take notes if you'd like. But first thing I want to say is that Paul had a mission. A mission from God. And that mission was that he was entrusted with the gospel. Verse 4, he says, We've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And so we speak. You see Paul's mission? He says, We've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Paul's mission was the gospel. He'd been entrusted with it. He'd been specifically tasked with speaking the gospel, and that's what he did when he was in Thessalonica. Look at it at verse 2. It says, Though we'd already suffered and been treated shamefully in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. You see, the reason that Paul's time wasn't in vain but rather it was meaningful and it was effective, was because he, along with Silas and Timothy, was bold. He spoke the gospel. Even though it meant that he suffered, he spoke the gospel. His time wasn't without hostility, but it also wasn't without result or without effect. And if we want to see Bendigo, if we want to see the city come to know Jesus, I put it to you that we too need to be bold. We need to speak the gospel. Do you want to see your friends and people who don't know Jesus, your friends, your family, your co-workers, your neighbours, do you want to see them come to know Jesus? Well, here's how you can have no results in terms of that happening. Here's how you can make sure that doesn't happen. Don't speak to them about Jesus. That's a way to be totally ineffective. Just don't talk to them about Jesus. That's how you can have no effect. But Paul says the gospel is a message and it has to be spoken. There's a well-known quote that's attributed to a guy Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, I don't know if he actually said this, but it's been attributed to him. It says, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. I want to say to you, words are necessary to speaking the gospel. Speaking the gospel and using words if necessary is like saying, feed the poor and use food if necessary. Words are necessary to to share the gospel. And Paul's mission is that he's been entrusted with the gospel, so he speaks. If we want to have no result for God's kingdom, then we won't speak. But if we want to actually make a difference, if we want to see people come to know Jesus, we need to speak to them. Which brings us to my second M, which is the message. If the gospel is a message that we need to speak to people, what is that message? What's the message that Paul declared to the Thessalonians? Well, in our first Bible reading in Acts 17, we saw that Paul reasoned from the scriptures, showing them that, that the Christ had to, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Or if you flick back to chapter 1, just a couple of verses, um, in 1st Thessalonians, he says this, verse 9, and 10, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This gospel message is a message all about what Jesus has done. It's not about what we do to get right with God. It's about Jesus, about God's son who who died and who rose again and now he delivers us from God's coming wrath, it says there, First Thessalonians 1 verse 10. God's word says that there is a true and living God who's wrathful. He's angry at us for our idolatry. He's angry at us for worshipping and serving things that aren't him. And only Jesus' death and resurrection rescues us from that wrath, from that anger. That's the message that Paul spoke. That's the message that turned the world upside down. And that's the message that we're entrusted to sharing as Christians. But I have to say, and you probably feel this, that message seems pretty offensive. I can see how that message would upset a lot of people. It's not a particularly inclusive message. What do we do if the, the message is unpopular? I mean, can't we just kind of go soft on some parts of that message? People don't want to hear about God's wrath. God's love, sure, people want to hear about God's love. But God's wrath? The, the problem is, you can't really understand or make sense of God's love unless you understand God's other attributes. If you don't understand God's wrath or his holiness or his justice, you will never understand God's love. God's love shown to us in Jesus dying on the cross won't make sense to you unless you understand why he had to die. And so we shouldn't seek to change this gospel message. Which brings me to the third M this morning, which is our motive. We are to speak the gospel, this gospel message about Jesus, what he's done in delivering us from God's wrath. But the reason that why we speak is going to have a huge impact on what we do with that message. Have a look at verse four to six in 1st Thessalonians. Paul says his motive. He says, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul was entrusted with this gospel message, and the reason that he speaks is not to please people. If I'm being honest, I like being liked. I think we all do. We want people to like us. But if we're really going to make a difference in the world and not waste our lives, if we're really going to have lives that count for something, we can't just live in a way that seeks to be liked by people. See our temptation is to think if if I'm liked by lots of people, I'll have lots of influence and therefore I'm going to achieve lots. But that's not how Paul operated here. Paul didn't operate like that, and Paul's one of the most influential people who ever lived. Paul says his motive, and it should be our motive too, was to please God. Not men. He says he didn't seek glory from people, either from the church or from others. You see, it's not just that we shouldn't seek to please the world, but the church, that's fine. As though we stop living to please non-Christians and we just start living to please Christians. Now, Paul says he didn't... Seek to please anyone but God. And I wonder what what audience is it that you're trying to please? Who is it that you're trying to impress? Do you get frustrated when people don't like that social media post you made? Why is that? I mean who is it that you're trying to please? Do you, do I get frustrated when people don't notice the things that we do? Why? Who was I really trying to please? Paul says God is the one whose opinion really counts. And so he says we don't use flattery to get people to like us. We don't do things out of greed to get ahead. We don't change the gospel message to something that people will like more. If we really love people, we we won't just pander to them and seek to please them. And our motive is going to affect our method. Fourth thing, our method is is not just sharing the gospel, but sharing our lives as well. Verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves, because you had become so very dear to us. Now, I said before that our message is about Jesus rescuing us from God's wrath, delivering us from God's wrath. Now, we need to share that message. But Paul says here, we need to be gentle with people as we do that. The the message is important. We have to speak it, but we need to speak the gospel in a a way that's gentle with people. Not just the message, not just what we share, but the way we share it is important. Paul says he had a genuine affection for people that he was sharing the message with. He cared for them. And because he cared for the people he was sharing the gospel with, he shared more than just the gospel. He shared his life with them. I wonder. Do we here at church care about people? Really? Like truly, deeply? Someone new walks through our our church doors, Do do we care enough to make an effort to get to know them? Not just on a Sunday morning, but in our lives. What about the people across the fence from you? Or across the street? Or the people at work, your extended family? Do we care about people? And do we care about them enough to share the gospel, but not just the gospel? But our lives, what what do you think? I know I think, you know, my life is pretty busy. I don't really have time for, for people. Sharing my life takes time and effort and emotional energy, and I just don't really want that level of commitment. It's easy to feel like that. It's also easy to have no gospel impact on people. If we're people who know Jesus' rescue of us, then that truth ought not just rescue us, it ought to transform us to be people who want to show this love to other people. We want to hold out the gospel. And gospel impact happens not just as we share the gospel with gentleness, with people, but as we share our lives with them. Because people aren't just studying the content of what we say. They're studying our hearts. They're studying our affections, even if they don't articulate that or can't articulate that. and They might not even realize that that's what they're doing, but they are. There's a well-known New Testament scholar, author, Don Carson. He once said this. He said that if he learned anything in all his years of teaching, it was that students didn't learn everything that he taught them. What they did learn was the things that he was really passionate about, the things that he got excited about, the kind of things that he emphasized again and again and again. Those were the things that people learned from him. So if that's what people are going to learn from us, if we want them to get the gospel, then we better be excited about the gospel. And our lives ought to communicate that. They won't communicate that we're better people, that we've got our lives together, but they'll communicate that we understand grace because we need grace ourselves. And grace is going to help us show Gentleness and warmth and genuineness. And let me just throw it out there. I don't think this is something I do well. I'm not good at sharing my life with people. I'm not good at being vulnerable. I spend all my time working with people and I'm a natural introvert. And so when I get downtime, what I want to do is just be by myself. Not only that, I say yes to too many things. And so subsequently I often find myself overloaded with tasks that I have to get done, such that when I finish them I want to fall in a heap and I don't feel like I have time and energy, emotional energy, to truly invest in, deeply in people's lives. I wonder if you're like me, if you feel like that. That's something you can be praying for me. Pray for me that I actually would be someone who maybe does less things and invests deeper into relationships with people. That so I'd be good at sharing not just the gospel, but I'd be good at sharing my life with people. Which brings me to my, our fifth M. Actually, I might run five and six together for the sake of time. Fifth M, the models that Paul mentions here. He says, "Verse nine. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to work, walk." in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they shared not only the gospel, but their lives. And because they shared their lives, they were actually models for the Thessalonians to imitate. Paul says, remember what we were like when we were with you. You were witnesses of that. You saw our lives. You saw how we lived. You saw our conduct, how it was righteous and blameless. And as Paul lived out his mission, as Paul shared this gospel message, as he lived not to please others but to please God, he shared his life, and as he did that, he lived as in righteousness. He modeled to the Thessalonians how to live a life that's not in vain, how to live a life that turns the world upside down, because he was following the example of Jesus. Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Paul, in Silas and Timothy, as they were in Thessalonica, they modelled the Christian life. They also modelled a manner, verse 12, We exhorted and encouraged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. This isn't just for Paul, as though he's some sort of super-Christian, or for Silas and for Timothy. It's actually for all Christians. We're all called on to live in a manner worthy of God who calls us. We don't do that in order to be rescued from God's wrath, because we already have been, right? We want to do it so that we can model to others what it looks like to be like Jesus. But what might this mean for us as a church? I wonder who are you or who could you be modeling the Christian life to? Because we're actually all models, not in the catwalk sense, but um, people will actually get what it looks like to be a Christian from us, from looking at us, from the example that we set. So why don't we be deliberate about the kind of model that we're setting? Why don't don't you think about who could you seek out and teach and help to live life as a Christian for? Parents, you are already a model to your children of what living a life of faith is. Reforming, all of us as a church, even if you're not a parent, we're all actually modelling a church culture to our kids. What kind of example are we setting? Are we setting an example that says we care about people? Are we modelling that prayer is something that we think is important? Are we modelling that going to church is something that we think is important? Or... Are we modelling that cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus is or isn't important? Are we modelling that reading our Bible for ourselves is important? See, are we modelling that serving with excellence and appropriate preparation is important? What kind of model is it that we're setting to people of what it looks like to be a Christian? Well, we ought to imitate Paul, as the Thessalonians did. And so we, we want to be living a life worthy of others to follow, as an example. But just to finish up, if we really want to impact our city, if we want to reach Bendigo with the gospel, this is how we're going to do it. People won't just attribute to us as a church what we say, but they'll attribute to us what we're excited about when we speak, about what we think is important, the difference it makes in our lives. And so we want that to be Jesus. We want it to be the gospel. We want it to be the cross. And if we do that, our efforts won't be in vain. But most of all, it's going to require God working in us and through us. It's not something we're going to be able to do in our own strength. We actually need God to transform our hearts, to change us, to make us more like his son. I pray that we would be a church like that, that we would be a church that has an impact in our city, and beyond us to the world. So how about I pray that God would do that, that he would work in us and he would use us to make a difference. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that Paul sets. Thank you that you worked in and through him powerfully as he shared the gospel message with boldness. I pray that you would give us boldness to do that. Thank you that you have sent your son to demonstrate your love for us. Thank you that he's rescued us from your wrath. Help us to not just share this message, but help us to share our lives with people, that we would share this message with gentleness, with genuine love and care and concern for people. We are... Sometimes the only picture of what a Christian is to people, and so we pray that you would help us to live lives worthy of the gospel, that we would live lives that are compelling, that people would want to know about the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. We pray for your help to have us do this. We pray it all for the sake of Jesus and his glory. Amen.